The Anarchist's Workbench by Christopher Schwarz Narrated by Ray Defterius This narration is by Ray Defterius. It is not endorsed or affiliated with the author or the publisher's Lost Art Press in any way. Preface At first glance, the workbench in this book appears to be almost identical to the bench I built in 2005, which has shown up in a number of magazines and books. It's chunky, made from yellow pine, and the work holding is a leg vice, planing stop and hold fasts. Despite their similarities, the workbench plan in this book is a significant improvement. During the last 15 years, I have found better ways to laminate the top using fewer clamps, easier ways to make the massive joints, plus layout tricks here and there that result in tighter joints all round. The top is thicker, heavier, and creates less waste when using 2x12 dimensional lumber. The work holding is far more effective. Thanks to improvements in vice manufacturing and a mature understanding of how the vices work, the leg vice is strong enough to hold boards without the help of a sliding dead man. There is no parallel guide, so you can work at the vice without stooping. The planing stop uses a metal tooth, made by a blacksmith, that holds your work with a lot less sliding. And the pattern of holdfast holes in the top, something that took me years to get right, ensures that there will almost always be a hole right where you need one. The fact that the bench is similar to my bench from 2005 is somewhat of a comfort to me. I mean, I wasn't too far off the mark when I began my journey. And equally remarkable is that 15 years of building workbenches of all different forms, from Roman workbenches to a miniature one from Denmark, wasn't able to shake my conviction that a simple timber frame bench is ideal for many woodworkers. In addition to the fully matured workbench design, this book also dives a little deeper into the past to explore the origins of the form. I first encountered this type of bench in a French book from about 1774, and at the time I couldn't find much else written about it. Since then, libraries and museums have digitized their collections and opened them to the public. So we've been able to trace its origins back another 200 years and found evidence it emerged somewhere in the Low Countries of northern France in the 1500s. We also have little doubt that there are more discoveries to be made. And finally, the story of this bench is deeply intertwined with my own story as a woodworker, researcher, publisher, and of course, aesthetic anarchist. That's why I've decided to give away the contents of this book to the world at large. The electronic version of the book is free to download, reproduce, and give away to friends. You can excerpt chapters for your woodworking club. Print it all out, bind it, and give it away as a gift. The only thing you cannot do is sell it or make money off it in any way. Put simply, commercial use of this material is strictly prohibited, but other than that, go nuts. If you prefer a nicely bound book instead of an electronic copy, we sympathize. That's what we prefer too. So we are printing some copies of this book for people who prefer it in that format. Those will cost a bit of money to make. We don't make low quality crap here at Lost Art Press. So we won't be able to give those away. But we will sell them, as always, at a fair price for a book that is printed in the United States. Sewn, bound in fiber tape, and covered in durable hardback. This book is the final chapter in the Anarchist series. The Anarchist Tool Chest, the Anarchist Design Book, and now the Anarchist Workbench. And it is, I hope, 
my last book on workbenches. So it seems fitting that to thank all the woodworkers who have supported me during this journey, this book should belong to everyone. Christopher Schwarz, June 2020, Covington, Kentucky. Chapter 1. Planting the Flag I dragged my workbench into the 1896 German barroom and dropped it in front of the building's giant built-in cabinet, called the Bat Bar, where the establishment's bottles of hard liquor were once arrayed in front of a 4-foot by 10-foot mirror. God, I hate mirrors, but I turned to face it anyway. Some days I wonder what brought me to the moment. I'd left a prestigious and well-paying job in publishing, a house in the suburbs, four weeks of vacation, and I traded that for a worn-out bar in a red-light district in Covington, Kentucky. Why? I think it had something to do with the death of my uncle. That day, I raised my phone and took a self-portrait. The bench, the mirror, and me. This spot, right here at my workbench, is where I hope to die. That's where the story will end. The story begins when I was 28, insecure, and honestly the worst woodworker I knew. My dad was a better craftsman. My uncle, better. My best friend at the time, definitely better. His wife, she was way better than all of us, a natural. But I had something that they didn't, a job at a woodworking magazine. A national magazine, with 200,000 readers. A position that commands true respect. There's a snapshot of one of my earliest days when a box arrived from California that was addressed to me. You don't effing deserve that, Jim spat. He eyed my new block plane with disgust. You haven't earned it. With that, he walked away from my desk. After shaking off the sucker punch, I decided Jim's outburst wasn't surprising. In his experience, every single thing in life had to be earned. Jim and I were both low-level editors at Popular Woodworking magazine in about 1997. Like the other staff members, except me, Jim had come up through a series of commercial woodworking shops in Cincinnati, where the magazine was headquartered. At the time, there was little job security in local shops. It was typical to be fired when the work slowed down before Christmas, then to be rehired in the spring when the rich people wanted new kitchens. The pace sucked and the work was difficult, with most shops freezing cold in the winter and broiling in the summer. So yeah, I could see how a young journalist, me, buying a $125 Lee Nielsen block plane would piss Jim off. During my lunch hour that day, I crept across the hall to the magazine's workshop and sharpened my new plane's irons at someone else's workbench. I was desperate to weasel my way into the magazine's workshop and earn a space to work. But to do that, I needed to stop borrowing their tools, which annoyed the piss out of them. It had taken me months to save the money for the plane. My salary was $23,000 a year, which was pathetic even for the 1990s. After taxes and health insurance, I took home about $300 a week. My wife Lucy was also a low-paid journalist, and together we had a one-year-old daughter, a mortgage, and a shocking daycare bill. We would have been better off financially if I'd stayed at home. But popular woodworking was a dream job. I was an enthusiastic and unremarkable home woodworker with a couple of journalism degrees 
and six years of experience at newspapers and magazines. I took the job at Popular Woodworking because I was tired of getting shot at, screamed at, and questioned by the state police. All part of a day's work in newspapers. A woodworking magazine seemed like an ideal idol. When I landed the job at Popular Woodworking, my dad congratulated me, even though he unsecretly wanted me to be a lawyer. You're going to love being surrounded by carpenters, he said. Salt of the earth people. He got the salty part right. With a block plane in hand, I thought I had enough tools to do some serious woodworking. I wanted to get back into dovetailing, which I'd learned during night classes at the University of Kentucky. But I didn't have a workbench in the magazine's workshop, so during lunch I'd step into the shop and work at someone else's bench and dispose of the evidence by the end of the hour. I was tolerated, but not encouraged. My job description was to edit the words, work with the graphic designers, schedule photographers, and meet the magazine's deadlines. For me, that work took about 20 to 30 hours a week. And my desire to work in the shop was so strong, it bordered on physical pain. So I asked my boss Steve if I could have a bench in the shop. The answer? There are no open benches. Could I build a bench? Answer? It's not your turn. Like all woodworking magazines, we received regular shipments of free tools, crap we didn't even ask for. The tool manufacturers were gambling that we'd fall in love with their gizmos and write a tool review, producing almost free publicity for them. One random box we received contained four brackets. I can't remember if they were plastic or aluminium, but they were designed to be a fast way to make sawhorses. You cut some pine two by fours to size and screwed them into the brackets. Voila, you had a pair of sawhorses without cutting anything other than 90 degrees and without having to muddle in any joinery. I decided the sawhorses could become the base of a workbench. I'd just make the legs 35 inches long instead of 24 inches. For the bench top, I scored a beautiful vineyard Art Deco walnut door from our warehouse. The door had been part of a huge system of folding doors to our building's cafeteria back when it was a Coca-Cola plant. I screwed the door to the sawhorses and scavenged a tiny Wilton vice for one end. I drilled some dog holes. Done. After only one day of work, I had a bench. While no one was looking, I scooted aside the table for the shop's dry grinder and pushed my bench into place. And after only two days of work, I had a bench that I hated. It scooted, jiggered, or slid every time I sawed, planed, or chiseled on it. When I finished planing a board, I had to drag the bench three foot back to the starting line to plane another board. Strangely, no one threw me or my bench into the dumpster. Jim scowled, but he held his tongue. I had planted my flag in the workshop. I was in. And so, at our next editorial planning meeting for the magazine, I asked, Can I build a workbench? Steve, it's not your turn.